I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime New England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us on this fine, rainy Thursday. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's it's pouring rain. Yeah. And it is actually a Thursday when we're recording this. Yes, that's right. Look so. at us. Look at us go. No lies in this intro. <laughs> Just kidding. I never, we never lie. Um, what's going on, Katie? Let's see. What is going on? We just got back a couple days ago from a little uh, true crime New England field trip. <laughs> we did. A it was pretty excursion. Fun. Yeah, good word. Yeah, thank you. It was a good time. Yeah, it was really fun. <laughs> it was so fucking hot out, but it was it was so good. Hot. It was fun. But it was so hot that day, and it was nineties. It was so bad, and we were in. I wouldn't say it was like the best temperature controlled building. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's okay, though, because it was cool. It was cool. We had a great time. Um, Katie and her partner, Danny, came up to visit me in Portland, and we went to the International Cryptozoology Museum, which is in Portland. And, um, man, is that fascinating. Like, you don't have to be someone who believes in cryptid stuff. Like, I personally don't. But it was so interesting. Oh, it's so cool. It's floor-to-ceiling packed with just random things about different cryptozoology myths you know it was but it's it's a cute little museum it's barely two floors like it's very small um but it was a good time we had fun it was packed though with stuff like everywhere you look there'd be like piles yeah almost of just stuff and it wasn't even like it didn't really make sense in the terms of, like, there weren't exhibits. It was all just a clusterfuck. So it was, like, you know, Bigfoot. Here's a, you know, a, a plaster cast of, like, Bigfoot. And then next to it would be, like, oh, here's a Pez dispenser shaped like the Mothman. <laughs> like, what? Okay. <laughs> it was very random. But entertaining. Very cool. Yes. So that was pretty fun. Yeah. We're glad we got to go. Yes. I had not been to a museum in quite some time. If you could really even call this a museum, more like a weird collection. But um, so it was nice to go back to one and just kind of yeah. be the spectator, you know? Yeah. Um, a couple, it'll be a couple weeks ago from when this episode comes out. It'll be a couple weeks ago. But um, judging by the title of this episode, <laughs> I'm sure you guys can see that we'll be covering the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Mm. It's in Boston. Um, it's one of my all-time favorite museums. Yeah, It's so gorgeous. I would go every day if I could. <laughs> it's so beautiful. But I went there with uh, my partner, Danny, and then Danny's friend, Griffin, and Griffin's girlfriend, Allison, mm. um, who we've mentioned before on here. We do, like, double dates occasionally. <laughs> but, yeah, it was really fun. It's so beautiful. Yeah, There's, like, this courtyard in the middle. It's four floors. Oh, shit. There's a huge courtyard in the middle, it's a gorgeous garden. There's like lush trees and ferns oh. and flowers. It's so pretty. Yeah. And every gallery has its own theme. There's like yes. rooms. Yes. It's it's beautiful. It's oh. gorgeous. How many times have you been there? Uh, that was my third time going. Nice. I've never been. We have to go. <laughs> It'll be a New England, a true crime New England field trip. I'm down. If you love we'll it go. so much. <laughs> we'll go. It sounds, the pictures you were posting are so beautiful. Please tell me you're at least including one on the website. Oh, yes. At least. For sure. You guys will see pictures. <laughs> but yeah, it's really cool. Um, and part of the museum that I really like mm-hmm. is, I mean, again, judging by the title of the episode, we're talking about the museum heist. Mm-hmm. They still have the stolen artwork on display. Yeah. Like you go into the room where it happened and you can see the empty frames on the wall. Oh, that's so eerie. Yeah. Wow. So that was really crazy to see. Like, that's why we should go, too, is, like, we're covering this on the mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah. So we'll, we'll check it out. We'll go. I feel like that's only fair, right? We got to know what we're doing. Yeah. Oh, that's cool that you were able to go before we covered it. Hell yeah. And you, this was one of the original ideas that you had when we said, oh, we should do a podcast. What could we do it on? You were like, well, true, you know, true crime, blah, blah, blah. And then you were like, huh. I have an idea. Heist. It was like one of your first ones. This actually, I don't know if anybody listened to our trailer, but we talked about this in the trailer, so it's really like an OG 
case. Yep, it really is. So it's cool to be able to cover it. I'm excited. Um, I didn't know anything about it going into it, and I was like, this is going to be just like a standard, you know? And I was reading about it, obviously, and I was like, wait, what? Oh, what so the hell? Cool. There's like twists and oh. turns. It's crazy. It's, yeah, it, it's nuts, and I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about it because it's, oh, in Boston of all places. In Boston of all places. And it's crazy because this, still to this day, mm-hmm. is the single largest property theft in the world. Yeah. And it's also on the FBI's top 10 list of crimes. Wow. Yeah. Go Massachusetts. We're there, on yeah, there. There we go. We're on there. We're on the map. <laughs> That's crazy. And if you guys know anything about Boston, like if you're from Boston, Boston takes no shit. No. It, and this is a very sensitive topic in Boston. Yeah. Like, it's almost like talking about bombs in an airport. Yeah. You don't do it. It's not the place. It's not the time. Oh it's not the audience. Right. So talking about the museum heist in Boston mm-hmm. is like, it's a very sensitive subject. Oh, you crazy. don't do it. Wow. I didn't know that. It's very sensitive. That's so funny. It's very delicate. Yes. Everybody has their theories as to where the art could be. Right, right. I think a few years ago there was like a, somebody sent in something like, hey, I heard it was here and then it wasn't. Yeah. Right. That's usually how it goes. (laughs) So yeah, I'm excited to get into it. It's going to be very interesting. So I hope you guys stick around. And without further ado, today we will be covering the the Isabella Isabella Stewart Stewart Gardner Museum heist. Okay, before we jump into it, no surprise, we'll go over our sources. And Katie, would you mind sharing yours with us, please? Sure. No surprise, I use Wikipedia. Wow. I also use the GardnerMuseum.org, which is the official museum website. I used FBI.gov. That would be very intense. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, oh shit. Wow. Official, official. (laughs) I used BostonMagazine.com insider.com and i also use the netflix docuseries titled this is a robbery the world's biggest art heist Mm. i got about you found it very recently i got through less than one episode i will finish it it was very interesting already from what i saw you should finish it was wow they did such a great job yeah you could tell there was a lot of art nuts in it yes which is great my people (laughs) so i used wikipedia I used Artnet News, the Smithsonian Magazine, and I also used Boston Public Library. So, a little different from what you got besides our trusty pal, Wikipedia. All right, that's (laughs) good, though. All right, why don't we take a little time to talk about who the heck is this Isabella Gardner-Stewart who's a what's-it, right? (laughs) Who's that? She's a bad bitch. Oh, yeah, that's true. I really, I didn't know all too much about her herself before Mm -hmm. we started doing research. She's really cool. So she was born in 1840 into a very wealthy New York family. She married a man named Jack Gardner, which is where she got her last name, of course. He had apparently been deemed Boston's most eligible bachelor. Really? Very rich, Mm. very like running around, Mm. loving life, until he met Isabella. And they settled down, got married. She lived a very luxurious, very comfortable life until she was 27 years old. Mm. At this time, she had a two-year-old son who she loved very, very much. He tragically died of pneumonia. She also had a miscarriage right after. And then doctors told her she could not have any more children. Yeah. And then to kind of add salt to the wound, her sister-in-law, Jack's sister, who she was very close with, also died within this short period of time. Wow. So she was just like, wow, life is terrible. You know, she was bumming it. And I don't blame her. That's shitty. She was so depressed after this. Yeah. So her husband, he sounds kind of awesome, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. He immediately was like, Let's go, my love. And he took her literally around the fucking world. Yeah. In 1867 or whatever. Like, literally around the world. I'm talking Scandinavia. I'm talking Russia. I'm talking Paris. I'm talking Asia. 
In Egypt? Like, what? In, eight, like, the 1800s. Okay, cool. Love that. Yeah, and it's crazy because this trip is where she developed a love for art and yeah. a love for travel. Yeah. And she was loaded. So she was buying art that really spoke to her. Mm-hmm. And normally, it wasn't really women that would collect art a lot of art dealers and sellers were men yeah so she was kind of one of the first ladies in the game to really have a substantial art collection and you know after this she went abroad several times back to egypt back to the middle east Mm -hmm. asia collecting art that just really spoke to her it's crazy to me i'm not someone who can look at art and be like "Mm, the economy you know like i can't tell what it means or anything but the fact that she loved it so much that she was going everywhere and collecting it and I think it's beautiful and it was clearly something really good for her born out of tragedy Mm -hmm. so I think that's really neat that she stuck on it so strongly and so passionately it's really a beautiful thing she was really cool because keep in mind around this time it was still considered the Victorian era so this is where women were basically supposed to sit down, shut the fuck up, (laughs) don't open your mouth, don't talk, just sit there like an object. Yeah. And she was like, I don't think so. (laughs) She drank beer. She smoked cigarettes. She played backgammon. Oh. She also had a lot of friends in the art world that were men because, again, Mm. she was really only one of the few female art collectors. Yeah. So she was the subject of a lot of articles because of (laughs) gossip. Yes. The Associated Press described her as a woman who did everything a proper Boston woman would not do. Oh, whoa. And one of the articles, actually several of the articles, said that perhaps she wasn't just collecting art, but she was also collecting men. Oh, God. Calling her a slut. Basically. No, a whore. A whore, even. A lady of the night. (laughs) She did not give a fuck. Good. She did not give a fuck. Do you want to know what she did after those gossip articles came out about her? What did she do? She purchased a lion and walked the lion on a leash down the street in Boston. Natural next steps. So, of course, there are more articles about her about that. And Mm -hmm. she just did not care. She lived her life. Yep. And she was amazing. She donated so much money to the arts. Yes. The Boston Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. An anonymous society woman, which I love this. She had to be anonymous because she didn't want to be associated. Uh. She told a reporter that Mrs. Jack Gardner is one of the seven wonders of Boston. There is nobody like her in any city in this country. She is eccentric. She is the leader of the smart set, but she often leads where none dare follow. Huh. Wow. Super cool. That's a high compliment. She was definitely known for promoting unconventional behavior. Yes. Which, as in, she was a boss-ass bitch, basically. (laughs) And you know what is even better for her is that, you know, at some point, um, it was like 1891, um, she had received a $1.75 million inheritance from her papa. (laughs) So she was loaded before, and now she's, like, loaded-loaded. So she was like, I'm going to keep buying art. And so she fucking did. And that was like her pride, like her project that she just loved, gave her so much joy, you know? Her husband actually died of a stroke in 1898. And so this is when she started building a museum that was also a house for her to live. Yeah. Because she was like, I have all of this art. Mm -hmm. Where do I put it? Right. So she built this gorgeous museum, which is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Ah. The first three floors were open to the public in 1903. She lived on the fourth floor in private chambers. And this is how eccentric she was. She had to have everything be perfect. So before the museum opened to the public, she wanted people to go in to help her test the acoustics inside, like how everything echoed. But she didn't want people to see it before it was finished. Mm. She had children come from the Perkins School for the Blind. (laughs) And, like, talk and sing in the museum because they wouldn't see it before it was done. Yeah, that's... Wow. What a lady. What a fucking lady. (laughs) That is so genius, honestly. She spent... It was, like, over a year she spent installing her collection. She wanted it to be perfect. And she wanted it to stay that way. Yes. Forever. And ever. 
Oh, and ever. <laughs> Truly. So when Isabella died after a series of debilitating strokes in 1924, her will stipulated that the arrangement of the artwork should not be altered and that no items were to be sold and no new items were to be brought in. It had to stay exactly how it was. Exactly. That was her will. And you know what? Hell yeah, bitch. I like that. <laughs> she had a collection of over 16,000 works of art. Oh my God. And she wanted it to stay open to the public as a museum too. Right. Um, she said that she wanted it to be open for the education and enjoyment of the public forever. Oh, that's cute. But the real important part of her will is that she didn't want anything to be touched, right. changed, don't breathe on it, yeah. don't move it over a centimeter, like, <laughs> leave it alone. Yeah. So that's why when this incident happened, it was huge in yeah. the art world. Like, people yeah. were freaking out. And, you know, as the years went on, obviously the building started to need routine maintenance and updated, like, you know, electricity, like, you know, updated stuff. Um, and so the art world and the people who worked for the museum did feel bad. But they were like, we need to install, you know, better toilets or whatever. Um, and in the 80s, it was 82, I believe, there was actually a plot that the FBI found out about that was going to be a museum heist. And so because of that, they installed like four cameras outside of the building and they felt bad about it because they didn't want to, yeah. you know, they didn't want to change anything. But logically, they had to. It was it's actually funny because over the next few years, like in the 80s, 90s, um, museum like workers and security guards and like the museum board and things like that were like, OK, we really should update. You know, there's like, you know, we need more security and like blah, blah, blah. And the board of trustees was like, no, Isabel didn't want that. So they didn't. They really, uh, they really shot themselves in the foot there. A <laughs> little bit. A <laughs> little bit. And let's tell them why. Sure. So it was early on Sunday, March 18th, 1990, when two men dressed as police officers, our, our friends, uh, parked a hatchback on Palace Road, which was just about like 100 feet from a side entrance to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, right? Not weird. Not at all. Sure. It's, you know, it's 1 a.m. Cool. Great. There were two security guards on duty, and this was standard for the museum. They had 23-year-old Rick Abath and 25-year-old Randy Heestand. So for Rick, he normally did the night shift, but Randy, this was his first night. Um, which I feel like that's always how these stories go. You know, it was like, oh, it was his first day on the job, and he solved a murder, whatever. So, same idea. Yeah, <laughs> it was so crazy because the usual night shift guard mm -hmm. had actually called out sick that day. Oh. So, they needed somebody to cover, and Randy was like, I mean, I've never done it before, but I guess I could try. Yeah, good for him. Good sport. So, normally their policy was that at night, one guard must patrol the galleries with a flashlight and a walkie-talkie, and the other guard sat at the security desk. So when Rick was done walking the galleries, it was he would sit down at the desk and then Randy would do a walk. It would take them a while because it's a very large building, like you said. Um, so on this morning, Rick was taking his first patrol. It was like the first patrol. They were do-do-do, you know, he was walking. Suddenly the fire alarms go off in different rooms, like not everywhere but in different rooms and he's like oh what the hell so he went he was looking around and he said i cannot find fire i cannot find smoke and then he went to the control panel and the control panel indicated that there was smoke in several rooms but there wasn't he thought maybe this was a malfunction so he shut the panel down he was like yeah i'm not dealing with this bullshit when this is the suspicious part that i think will come back a little later um, on his way back to the security desk where Randy was, Rick passed the side entrance of the museum. He opened the door and then he shut it. Okay. Curious, yeah. Weird. And the only reason that they knew that was because they had the security cameras outside of the building and then infrared motion detectors inside the building. 
it was weird. And the weirder part, too, is that when he got back to the desk, he didn't tell Randy that he did that. Which, it wasn't a part of his routine, usually. So it was like, what the hell? Okay. Right, like, what was the reason for all of that? That's very weird. So then it was Randy's turn to go on his, go on his merry way, do a little rounding, you know? And it was his first night, so you go, buddy. You got this. Took his flashlight and he walked. And he walked away. This leads us to roughly 1.20 a.m. And this is when the real fun happens. So... These two police officers, quote, they pushed the buzzer, saying that they were there to respond to a reported disturbance. Hmm. So Rick was assuming that, you know, it's St. Patrick's Day. It's so close to St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. It's 1.20 in the morning. It's yeah. a Saturday night, Sunday morning, super early. Yeah. Boston, it's St. Patrick's Day. Oh, my God. It's a nightmare. It's like... <laughs> A war, that's like their holiday. It's a war zone. Like So many Irish Catholics. They're out yeah. uh, drinking. Hello. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously. As you, well, I mean, it's St. Patrick's Day and, and they're Irish. Irish. Uh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> I didn't want to say it. But. If you drink every day, you're going to drink way more on St. Patty's Day. You're mm-hmm. going to go off, maybe take your shirt off, run oh, around. Definitely take your shirt off. Definitely. And the area that this was located in, in Boston... It used to have a big concentration of Irish, mm. so they go hard yes, on St. Patty's Day. They yes, go hard. They do. they do. So Rick said that he assumed, because it's St. Patrick's Day, maybe somebody had on a dare or they got too drunk. Maybe mm. they jumped the fence yeah. into the museum property. Right. So breaking protocol, Rick actually let in the two, quote, police officers, right through the employee entrance. Oh, boy. He leads the men into a foyer. This separates the side door from the museum mm-hmm. between, like, the foyer and the side door. So now they're in the museum, like, mm-hmm. inside, inside. Yeah. They approached Rick at the desk because he buzzed them in. Mm-hmm. He's sitting at the desk. Randy's still on his rounds. Right. Rick then radioed Randy to start coming back from the desk. And as... Rick did, he's looking at these police officers and he's getting a better look at them. You know, he's not looking at them on the camera. He sees them in person. Right. He's starting to put two and two together that one of the guy's mustaches looks fake. <laughs> oh, can you imagine like the heart dropping, yep. gut wrenching, like, why is this man wearing a fake mustache? Something out of like a cartoon. Literally. And I guess one of the police officer impersonators noticed maybe some understanding starts to cloud on Rick's face Mm -hmm. because the police officer said, hey, you look familiar. Is there a warrant out for your arrest? Come out from behind the desk. Come over here. Yeah. What? So Rick is going to listen to what he thinks is a Boston police officer. Right. He gets up from behind the desk and walks over. And in doing so, he leaves the desk where the only way to notify police is by pushing, like, a panic button, essentially. Right. Like at a bank? Yeah, exactly. Like, you hit a button under the desk, the police are notified. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So this fake police officer gets him to come away from the desk, and he then shoves Rick against the wall, handcuffs him. Mm. As Randy comes into the room, the other police officer guy does the same thing to Randy, Oh. Pins him against the wall, spreads his feet apart, yeah. handcuffs him, and then they duct tape their faces. Oh, and the image, like they showed pictures in that, uh, the one half episode I did watch of the museum heist recap, and this was no joke. It wasn't like they taped his eyes or whatever. They taped like around his head, like a, like a bonnet. Like, it was around his head. Yes. And then around his head like a hat. Like, it was weird. You know what it reminded me of? Like, the classic, when you get your wisdom teeth out, you have to wear that strap around your chin to hold the ice packs to your face. Yes. It looked like that, but with duct tape. And then over his eyes. Oh, oh, it was so scary. It was very... And I, you know what I was thinking? He had very long, curly hair. Oh, My first thought was like, ow, 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 ow. Ow. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so bad. <laughs> right? Fuck. And now they were both taped and handcuffed. And I feel like this is so cheesy because it was at this point, now that they had, the policemen had Rick and Randy under their control, they were like, ha ha, 
we're not really policemen. <laughs> and then they like took off their hats and peeled their mustaches. Yes. Like, we fooled you. We're going to rob the we're museum. Gonna... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then they also, of course, warned them or like, you guys better not give us any trouble or else. <laughs> like, okay. They didn't brandish any weapons. Yeah. Besides hand. I mean, handcuffs, I don't think they have, like their own bodies, but they didn't use any weapons. Um, and then they brought Rick and Randy down to the basement where they were handcuffed to a steam pipe and a workbench. And then they said, ha ha, we tricked you. Bye. And they went upstairs and, uh, <laughs> what was crazy about this was that the robbers did not need to ask for directions to get to the basement. They just knew. Oh, they like grabbed the guys, you know, they're handcuffed, duct taped. Mm-hmm. They led them directly to the basement. That is weird. No, like, no questioning. Where's the basement? Do you have a basement? Do you... Right, do you have a basement? It would be a good starter question. And also, too, I wonder if the officer got Rick out from behind the desk on purpose because he maybe he knew about the panic button and how oh. that was the only way to alert police. Sure. Because apparently... Between the security guards and the staff at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, it Mm -hmm. was a pretty open inside joke that the security there sucked ass. Yeah. They, you know, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is so close to the MFA, which is a huge museum in Boston, too. Yep. The MFA is getting all of these security updates, and the museum is like, oh, we're going to keep it the same, we're going to... We'll do the infrared in this room yes. and maybe a camera outside. And maybe it's what she would have wanted. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. So I guess what the MFA was doing is they had a security system where every hour on the hour, a guard would pick up the phone, call the police station nearby and say, hey, everything's all set. Oh. I'll call you back in an hour. Huh. Okay. So it was very unusual for museums at the time to still do this panic button situation. It was very outdated. Yeah, I would bet. And so... I also found this very interesting, and this is just a, like, supposedly. The thieves, supposedly, took the two guards' wallets, informed them that they now knew their addresses, and if they did not tell any real policemen, they would get a reward in about a year. Holy (laughs) shit! Isn't that like, okay, all right, weirdo. Wow. I know, that's, like, vaguely threatening, but, like... Yes. Not at the same time. Like, it's just bizarre. And then, um, like we talked about, there's no cameras inside, but there is infrared motion detectors. So this followed the thieves, like, pathway throughout their heist, essentially, um, which was helpful, but I feel as though cameras would have been more helpful. For sure. (laughs) So why wouldn't they get cameras, but they are okay with infrared motion detectors? Like, why would Isabella approve of that and not cameras? Like, you know what I'm saying? I don't know. Um, And then this is when they started to get to thieving, essentially. (laughs) Yeah. So from them breaking into the museum until they left, it was a span of 81 minutes. Pretty quick, honestly. And they stole 13 pieces of artwork. So... The security cameras that they did have were very limited. Mm. There was a VHS tape system because this is you know, the 90s. Sure. Um, the thieves stole the VHS tape with the security footage. Smart. Which, how did they know where that was? That's a really good point. But the first alarm for the infrared around the paintings and the other artwork was set off at 1.48 a.m. in the museum's Dutch room, and this is where several works of art were stolen. Mm-hmm. And apparently there was, like, a device that was beeping that they had set up that if you were too close to the paintings, you would get beeped at. And apparently that was going off the whole time, because, I mean, yeah. they were too close to the painting. Yes, and they thought that if you were to steal the art mm-hmm. and this thing's beeping at you, you would think, oh, the police are on their way, i got to get out of here. No. No. <laughs> So, yeah, there's, like, alarms going off all over the place, and these guys are just, do-do-do, 81 minutes, stra-la-la. Right, literally. The first painting that was stolen, it was actually cut out of its frame. Ugh. It was 
Christ in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. They also cut a lady and gentleman in black out of the frame. That's so... With, like, a box cutter or a knife. Like, they're being very rough. Yeah. They're, like, cutting it out of the frames. Oh. Why would they do that? Wouldn't their plan be to, like, sell it? Who's going to buy a ripped... Okay, whatever. They also removed a painting called The Concert, as well as landscape with an obelisk from their frames. They pulled an ancient Chinese bronze beaker called a goo from a table. They took a small self-portrait from the side of a chest. Mm. And it's really bizarre, like their choice of artwork. The painting, The Concert, was only one of 36 known paintings by the artist called Johannes Vermeer. It's thought to be the most valuable unrecovered painting in the world. Wow. Yeah. Holy shit. And the Chinese beaker was the oldest work stolen out of all 13. Yeah. It was from like the Shang Dynasty, something crazy like that. Um, Crazy stuff. And it was um, a ritual vessel. So that's like old, old times. And then, you know, the first two paintings um, were both by Rembrandt. Which, I mean, I don't know much about art, but I recognize that name. So I know it's, like, a big deal. Um, And then the small self-portrait that they also took was of Rembrandt. Um, It was, like, a sketch, almost. Um, And they also, ironically, cut out, like, a big self-portrait of Rembrandt. And then they just left it. (laughs) They left it leaning against a cabinet. Yeah, like, what made them decide to not steal that and take the little one instead? I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. And then at this point, it's 1.51 a.m., so it's been like three minutes. They're like cutting it down. They're moving along. Um, The thieves went to a short, narrow hallway that was called the Short Gallery, which was on the second floor. And in this gallery, a Napoleonic flag was half unscrewed from its frame. But it was kind of obvious that they could, like, they gave up. They were like, oh, this is too much work. So instead of the, the flag itself, they took the eagle finial which was on top of the flagpole. Wow. Good choice. Yeah, what the hell? Very random. They left a bunch of the screws, too. There was Mm -hmm. an ashtray, and there were screws that had fallen into the ashtray. (laughs) Just, like, thrown, left there. Like, they're being very rough with these very valuable pieces of art. Mm -hmm. They're being very rough. Yeah. They also, from the same short gallery... They stole five separate drawings by Edgar Degas, who's like renowned yeah. artist. Wow. Those sketches were some of the only ones that he had done of the subjects that he had drawn. Yeah. So it's it was very upsetting. Yeah. So the very last piece of work that the thieves stole was called the Shea Tortani, and it was by um, an artist named Edouard Manet. And um, this was stolen from a room called the Blue Room. And... That was it. That's how much... And it was 13 pieces of art total that they stole in such a brief amount of time. 81 minutes. It seems almost impossible. Yeah. They really were working fast. Oh, my God. It actually took them two separate trips back to the car. Nuh-uh. Yep. Oh, my God. They took two trips. Two trips. So it's like, while they're hacking away at these priceless paintings like these treasures they're also being very like what do you think we should put in the car first yes right it's almost like (laughs) moving in a u-haul they're like how should we position this frame and this the mattress goes yeah (laughs) that's so funny so it's it's crazy because while they're hauling ass with these pieces of work yeah they're being so lenient almost that they're taking two separate trips to the car yeah I didn't know that. That's weird. Yeah. So by the time they left, it was 2.45 a.m. They left the guards in the basement, mm-hmm. handcuffed, duct taped. The next shift of guards came on to relieve them, and they realized something was amiss when they couldn't get a hold of anybody to let them inside. Yeah. So they called the police, and the police are investigating. Like, they go in, and there's frames on the floor, screws, artwork that was taken down but left behind. Right, yeah. There was a frame that was left on the floor in the guard's office. So the next shift comes on and they see this empty frame and they're like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Oh, fuck. What is going on? Yeah. I wonder if they first thought, like, did those two security guards do this? 
Yes. Because they couldn't find him at first. Right. They didn't know where the hell they were. And then one of the guards coming on said to the others, you guys, we have to call the police. What if the thieves are still here? Oh, God. So they ran outside, called the police. The police are going through sweeping, and Mm. they find these guards in very rough shape. Yeah. Handcuffed in the basement. They found them at 8.15 in the morning. Oh, that's literally seven hours. Like seven hours. That's oh. like almost all their shift. Yeah. Well. <laughs> sucks. I, you know what? I'm glad they weren't hurt. They weren't seriously hurt, exactly. which is good. That's very lucky. They weren't killed either. They could have easily been killed. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So all in all, the artwork is estimated today mm. to be worth $500 million. Whoa. million. Shit. So our girl Isabella was probably rolling in her grave. Undoubtedly. And then, I hate to say it, guys, but here we are in 2022 and it's none of it has been found. That's what's so crazy, too, is all of this is still unsolved. Yeah. It's all unsolved. And experts are very confused as to the heist itself. Yeah. They're very confused by the choices of artwork. (laughs) They left extremely valuable pieces behind Mm -hmm. in place of items that maybe they thought they were easier to carry. Like the Chinese beaker. Yeah. Not valuable at all. Really? Not valuable at all. I mean, a couple thousand on the street, if that. Right. But compared to other paintings that were there worth millions. Yeah. And the way that they were handling the art, too, very rough. Yeah. Cutting it from the frames. Yep. Oh, yeah. It was very clear that either this was their first art heist or they just were not pro-art thieves and didn't really know what they were doing. Yeah. That's probably accurate. Yeah. So, obviously, you know, the FBI immediately comes in because this is a big deal. This is millions, millions, millions of dollars in ancient, precious, valuable artwork. So, of course, the... FBI are called. And they were immediately really frustrated because there was no fingerprints, there was no footprints, there was no hair, there was nothing. No definitive evidence anywhere. Besides, the only thing that they had really was the guards' eyewitness testimony or whatever, Mm -hmm. and then the infrared motion detectors. Yes. And that's not really that much. The guards... um. They described one thief as being around 5'9 to 5'10 in his late 30s. And then the other one was between 6 feet and 6 feet 1 and in his early 30s. So, and then of course, fake mustaches. That is just, that's crazy. It's funny too because they made sketches of them with and without the mustaches. (laughs) Which is smart, just in case. It's a good idea. It really is. It's just like funny that it had to come to that i know i know there was actually several suspects that the fbi pointed their fingers at over the years um but no one was like definitively charged ironically one of the first suspects they had was rick abath the night one of the night guards who was there that night um mainly because of his suspicious behavior which would include opening and shutting that door yes which is weird because he never had done that before, according to cameras and like the motion detectors. So what was up with that, you know? And then, you know, when they were like, what was that about? He said that that was a part of his nightly routine. And then his normal coworker who was sick that night was like, um, that's unlikely because when the doors open, it like sets off like something in their computer to be like, this door was open. And then if the you know, head of security found out they were doing that, he, they would just say, can you just stop doing that? Right? So it was like, okay, weird. It's obviously not a part of your nightly routine. So another suspicious, it's so weird. The blue room, that's where the Shea Tortani was. The whole 81 minutes of the robbery, nothing was detected on that motion sensor. Nothing. So it's almost like, okay, when would it have gone missing then? Yep. Could it have been before the 81 minutes? Ooh. hmm The last person known to be in that room besides the two thieves was Rick. That's right, because Rick called the other guard back mm. from his walk saying, hey, there's people yes, here. Yes, that's right. And it hadn't been very long since he started his walk. Right. 
Mm, sounds good. There you go. And there's also the fact that a lot of the knowledge needed inside the museum, like where the basement was, yep. where the VHS tape was ca was kept. Yep. When his round ended and the, the rookies started. Yeah, or even where the panic button was because they got Rick out from behind the desk away from the button. Right. So a lot of people think that it was an inside job. Mm-hmm. Curious. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Very curious. And then there's one more detail. In 2015, the FBI were like, hey guys, we have something that's kind of interesting. And it was a security video from the night before the heist. And it showed Rick buzzing in an unidentified man to talk to him at the security desk. And of course, now it's 25 years later, Rick's like, I don't know who that was. So the FBI is actually very convinced that this robbery was done by a criminal organization. AKA the mafia. The mafia. We love the mafia. You know, I'm Irish. Yeah. I love Italian food. Love the it. Cuisine. The cuisine is... Nothing against the mafia. We no. just found this in our research. We're just reading it's what we found. Yep. We love the mafia. <laughs> love them. So... Disclaimer. <laughs> at the time of this heist, there was a huge internal gang war going on. Oh. So there's one theory that this gangster, his name is Bobby Donati, there's a theory that he organized the heist so that he could exchange the art for his leader's release from prison. Interesting. Bobby was actually murdered just one year after the robbery, so the, this theory hasn't been able to be explored that much. Hmm. Um, however, oh? there is a notorious Boston area art thief. His name is Miles J. Connor Jr. Hmm. He made an official statement to the FBI because the FBI was like, where was Miles on this day? That's how notorious he was. He right. robbed the MFA, oh, yes. like, right next door. Oh. And one of the paintings he took was an artwork by the artist Rembrandt, Ooh. who, if you guys will recall, several of his paintings were stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner. Right. So the FBI was like, where was Miles on this night? And Miles was actually serving time in prison. Oh. But Miles said to the FBI... I know emphatically and beyond any doubt who stole the art. Oh. Miles then told the FBI that himself and Bobby were good friends and they cased the museum during a visit in 1974. 1974? Miles said during the visit, Bobby was very fascinated with the eagle, the eagle finial. Hmm. After his murder, after Bobby was murdered, um, the FBI actually was keeping tabs on his whereabouts. Oh. We don't know who killed Bobby. It's probably mm. part of the mafia, honestly. But Which is fine. We love the mafia. Nothing against the mafia. You know, you guys can do no wrong. Good. Very loyal. Very loyal people. Innocence will proven guilty. It's how it goes. Amen. So after Bobby's murder, they found a paper bag with his other stuff. And this paper bag contained two Boston police uniforms. <gasps> oh, shit. Crazy. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. So Miles was interviewed by this Netflix docu-series. Yeah. It's so crazy. He's like this old man. He's like, yeah, I stole this. I had a collection of this. That was, yeah. Well. So they asked him, like, why would you steal art? <laughs> like, what's the reason? If you're not going to sell it, right. what's the reason? So Miles said that a lot of art pieces are stolen to either negotiate immunity from prison. Like, hey, I'll give you back this priceless art. Or I'll tell you where this art is mm -hmm. if I get to walk out of jail free. Mm -hmm. He also said that sometimes people will get the insurance money, oh. the reward money or the ransom money with the return. You could also sell it on the black market, of course. True. Um, and you can also use it as a bargaining chip to get somebody else out of prison. Okay. So Miles said, you know, I'm besties with Bobby. Mm -hmm. What if Bobby stole this artwork to get me out of prison? Well, that's kind of selfish, but yeah. Yeah, so Miles was like, listen, I don't know what this idiot was doing. If it were me, I would have gone for more valuable pieces. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. He does look good for it. Absolutely. Yeah. There was a few suspects that they had. Like, one of them was Whitey Bulger. Yes, that's um, right. Which is like, oh boy. But he he claims, you know, he had nothing to do with it. And he, to prove it, he even sent in his own agents and was like, 
investigate this because this is nuts and like it's his own turf why would he do anything to harm it so they were like yeah whatever okay and then there was another guy um his name was brian mcdevitt and he was actually a con man from boston who had actually tried to attempt the hide collection in new york so his mo was very similar to this heist because he dressed up as a fedex driver and carried in a package you know as a fedex person does (laughs) that had handcuffs and tape in it and he was planning to steal a rembrandt piece yes yes and so you know the fbi ran his fingerprints and they were like maybe this is it no it wasn't didn't found any wow yeah i know isn't that crazy basically to this day nothing's ever come from anyone right there was one thing in 1994 that people were like And then that was it. And that was it. And it was weird. It was very bizarre. Like a dead end. So in 1994, museum director Anne Hawley, she received an anonymous letter from someone who supposedly was attempting to negotiate a return of the artwork. This writer said in the letter that they were a third party negotiator. They didn't know who the thieves were, but they said that the artwork was stolen to reduce a prison sentence but that this opportunity had passed, so there wasn't a motive to keep the paintings anymore. Hmm. The writer stated that the artwork was being held, quote, in a non-common law country under climate-controlled conditions. Okay, good. And that they wanted immunity for themselves and everybody else involved. They wanted $2.6 million for the return of the artwork. Whoa. Which was actually more than the reward for the return of the artwork itself was at that time. Wow. It was like a million or $2 million. They wanted this money to be sent to an offshore bank account at the exact same time the art was handed over. Oh. Yeah. So they were like, if you want to negotiate, you have to print a coded message in the Boston Globe. (laughs) The writer of this letter also stated information that was only known to those at the museum and the FBI. Whoa. Okay. That's legit. Yeah. So the museum calls up the FBI. Hey, we got something for you. The FBI calls the Boston Globe. (laughs) They printed the coded message in the issue on May 1st, 1994. Museum director Ann Hawley then received a second letter a few days later. The letter was saying, we're scared. There's a big federal investigation. You're going to uncover our identities. We need more time to evaluate our options. Wow. Never heard back. Wow. That was it. 32 years later. Never heard back. That's nuts. Yep. Yep. So the FBI was like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> like, we did all this. Yep. We're playing games. Are you? Yeah. Oh, ridiculous. my God. So they're not sure if it was legit or not. But the fact that they, in the letter, stated very top secret information, basically. Right. Yeah. Crazy. That's nuts. Yep. So if you guys ever want to go to the museum um, in Boston, as I talked about, you can still view the empty frames from the stolen oh, art. That's crazy. So there's a couple reasons that they keep them there. Um, the first reason is they want to keep them displayed as a placeholder for the artwork. Oh. And they also keep them up as a symbol of hope that they will one day be returned. Yeah, that's sweet. They also have to keep them up because Isabella was like, I will fucking haunt your ass if you <laughs> touch anything. It's yeah. in my will. Right. Keep it. So they're like, well, we technically have to leave them up. So, yeah. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is offering a $10 million reward for any information that leads directly to the safe return of the stolen artworks. It was $1 million, then they upped it to $2 million, then they upped it to $5 million. The current reward is $10 million. Wow. Good thing I know where it is. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> little cash out. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. If anyone sees us driving. Yeah, right. <laughs> Lamborghini. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually also a separate reward of $100,000 that's being offered for the return of the Eagle Finial. Oh, okay. Anyone with any information about the stolen art is asked to please contact the director of security. His name is Anthony Omore. His phone number is 617-278-5114. You can also email reward at gardnermuseum.org. You can remain anonymous and your confidentiality is assured. Wow. You're also asked to please contact the FBI's official hotline. Oh. Their phone number is 1-800-CALL-FBI. Wow. Yeah. So 
this has been unsolved, obviously. There's so many theories as to where the art could be. It's insane. A lot of experts think that it was split up and it's all over the world. Yeah, I bet you're right. There actually was a memo from the FBI in a 2015 press conference. They said, you know, we have a pretty good idea of who did this. Oh. We don't know where the artwork is. So they appealed to the public and they said, you know, go on the website, look at the art. Yeah. If you think that you've seen someone with this artwork hanging on their wall, yes. above their mantle, above their fireplace, above their bed, in their living room, mm-hmm. call us. Wow. Even if you think it's not legit, even if you think it's a copy, right. call us. Wow. That's nuts. Yeah, and in the Netflix docu-series, they interviewed a woman who was related to somebody in a gang that they initially suspected. Yeah. And she helped hang up this picture. (gasps) And then, you know, the FBI issued that statement showing the art. Uh She said her heart sunk to her stomach because she recognized one of the pictures. She said that picture right there is one that I helped hang up on the wall. Oh. In so-and-so's apartment. My God. Yep. So she came forward and she's like, hey, you know, F- FYI. <laughs> LOL. Yep. Wow. But nothing ever came of it. Jesus Christ. So yeah, 13 pieces of art, over $500 million. Nobody knows where it's at. Gone. Yep. That's crazy. Crazy. And this to this day is the biggest museum heist in the world. That's pretty awesome for Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. But it's not really. Top 10 FBI's cases that's pretty awesome too but also not not at all (laughs) wow poor isabella i know that poor woman she tried so hard she did amazing things for that art crazy that was a very interesting studying sesh oh yeah yeah so if you guys think you know where the art is (laughs) after you call the fbi you should follow us on twitter and instagram at true crime any all lowercase. And you could also email us at truecrimene at gmail.com. You could also head over to our website, truecrimene.com. Now's your time to take advantage of our anonymous feature. Yes. Our submission tool. Yes. You can be anonymous. Let us know what you think. Maybe if you know where the paintings are. It, even just one of the paintings or the Chinese goo. Yeah. We, you know, we'll split it with you. We will. <laughs> It'll be like 90-10, but it'll, we'll spit, <laughs> we'll split it. I mean, hey, let us know. Let us know your thoughts. Please. Let us know any other cases you'd like for us to cover. And let us know. <laughs> just let us know. And um, with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.